I never gave you permission to send out my manuscript to other people. I am done with your journal. And there's a, you know, you can, you can Google it. You can find he, the, he the can get letter. He can pull it off. He can get yeah. away with that. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am, by who should still be wearing masks. Okay, I know that I, I harp on this, but I went into the grocery store the other day and it was the first time I've been in a store with people who were not wearing masks. And I don't necessarily know that that is problematic, but it feels weird. So I'm curious as to whether you all have had this experience and whether you are finding it as as difficult to change your behavior assuming that we should change our behavior as I do. Yeah, I, f- I find it really hard to figure out what the etiquette is. You know, uh, take your cues from your surroundings and whether the person behind the cash register is wearing one or not, and whether other 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 guests or customers are wearing one or not. I mean, I, I, from a scientific standpoint, I feel quite good about not wearing a mask because I've been fully vaccinated and, you know, I, I feel quite protected and I don't feel as if I'm substantially a risk. But uh, it's, it's, it's become a, a real social thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that. Uh, believe the science. At this point, uh, the only reason to wear a mask in a in a in a Seven Eleven is if you're robbing the Seven Eleven. I'm going to assume. <laughs> right. I, I assume none of us is doing that, and I assume Chris, you also mean, of course, if you're vaccinated. Oh, hypothetically, right? Yes. No, you should. If you're robbing a Seven Eleven, you should definitely be vaccinated. It's it's it just stands to reason. Uh, okay, I'm just going to leave that one right there and move as on. As well as as well as masked. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health here at the BU School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. A great pleasure to be here. (laughs) That that did not help. I tried to mix it up there. That was, of course, Don Thea from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Don. Hey, Matt. No, that was Chris. <laughs> okay. I, I occasionally hear from people who tell me that they that we all can't sound tell the same. One from the, from another. Yeah. So you doing that has just gone and made it worse. I so, think my voice is more mellifluous. Yeah. You keep telling yourself that, Chris. I think your voice right. is more lengthy, Chris. Lengthy. Lengthy? lengthy? Yeah. Is that yeah. like verberia? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we we tend to hear more of it. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, we could all be so lucky. Oh, boy. All right. I'm going to just go on to the show because I can't do anything else at this point. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club, we're going to look at a, a study as to whether the drug MDMA is effective for treating PTSD. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about whether vaccine passports are legal and ethical, at least in the United States. I suppose the ethical nature doesn't change, but the legal nature could. And in our Amazing and Amusing, which is our third segment, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just blew us away. So let's get into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at the effectiveness of the drug MDMA to treat PTSD. It was also published... known also known as ecstasy. I, I wouldn't know, Don. Yeah. I, no, no. I, I've, I've consulted some experts in the field. I appreciate that. So this article was published in Nature Medicine. 
And it was titled MDMA Assisted Therapy for Severe PTSD, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase three study by first author Jennifer Mitchell of the Department of Neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, out in California. So got a lot of headlines, as you wouldn't be too surprised to learn. Yahoo says MDMA shows promise as severe PTSD treatment. Time Magazine says a new study points to MDMA as a powerful treatment for PTSD. BBC News says MDMA could help trauma survivors face painful memories. And ABC News says how MDMA could treat PTSD in ways current therapy can't. So Chris, can you walk us through this one? Tell us what they did and what they found. Sure. This was an absolutely fascinating study I, I found. Agree. I, I think from just, just as a as a prequel, I think that from the perspective of the randomized control trial itself, it was it was it was really rather straightforward. They had some interesting study design elements, which I'll describe. But the the, the basic question behind it just just sort of you know made me maybe think really deeply, and it, and it felt like it had some interesting uh, some contemporary analogs to the, the the recent use of ketamine for mm-hmm. treatment of severe depression. So it, it is basically we're looking at a a, a sea change in the the, the acceptance or the embracement of the idea that, that psychedelic medications might have important psychiatric therapeutic effects. Uh, I think this is just a really interesting idea, and, and I'm you know fascinated to see where this field goes over the coming years and maybe decades. But but this this was a this was a, a huge uh, proof of concept in the in the case of of PTSD. So with all that said, let me just remind uh, everyone that PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, is a huge problem in amongst individuals who have a particularly experience trauma through violence in uh, combat situations. But it, of course, it's not unique to combat. It's just that combat is, is such a, an obvious way of, of being traumatized in that way. And, and what we know about PTSD in terms of, of what it is at a sort of a neuropathology level is that it has something to do with an accelerated experience of fear, that there are circuits in our brain that, uh, you know, appropriately or inappropriately attach a, 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 a fear to the experience of, of different uh, things that happen to us. Um, and that these can be, you know, you can have sort of echoes of these events that, that occur long after the, the event itself. And that you know, while the the precise mechanisms are still pretty unclear, it seemed to me, it, it seems that the serotonin system plays an important role in this. And and that is the reason why, in terms of current treatments, we use drugs like Prozac or Paxil, you know, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors as first-line therapy, psychopharmacological therapy for PTSD. But it also seems to be the case that, that uh, behavioral therapy, talking you know, therapy, in other words, uh, is also a very important uh, aspect to this. But in both cases, the, the drug treatments and the therapeutic approach are at best only partially successful at, at, at improving symptoms of PTSD. And the disease remains chronic and relapsing, and there's a lot of sequela in terms of disruption of people's lives, a loss of quality of life, and also the risk of suicide. So this is an enormous unmet public health need. Now, the interest in, in ecstasy, which is technically, what is the, it's a methylene dioxy methamphetamine. So it's a stimulant, but it, it has rather broad effects that tweak the serotonin system as well as the norepinephrine system. And, and so in a way, you can see that this is a drug that, that targets the same general system as the Prozac-like drugs do. Do, but it is a much more potent agonist of the serotonin system. And so in mouse models, where I, I suppose there's a, some way of, of 
creating a PTSD-like trigger in a mouse, you can treat those mice, and when the mice have been treated with mDNA, they, you know, de-express their their you know, their exaggerated fear response subsequently. So in, a, in an animal model, it seems that this, this theory works. And when these mice have been euthanized, you can see that it is, you know, the PTSD mice have, you know, you know, substantial changes in the, the serotonin systems and parts of their brain, and that these are, are aligned with, with uh, changes following the use of, of a drug like uh, ecstasy. So there's a sort of interesting theoretical basis for this. And then that has led to a number of smallish phase two trials, which when viewed through a meta-analysis suggested that, that, that you know, there was possible therapeutic benefits of it. And so that was the rationale for the current phase three trial. And it was a, it was a very well done study, I would say. Basically, they, they, they screened a large number of individuals who, you know, had experienced PTSD-like symptoms. They selected the ones who had the most severe PTSD meaning that they scored high on a on a screening tool called the cap the caps five tool. And they had to achieve a score of 45 or above, with 35 or above being the, the, the sort of established cut point for where you have severe PTSD. So these individuals all had severe and probably very severe PTSD at baseline. And then they randomized them to either be in a group that received a placebo plus therapy or to receive ecstasy, the MDMA plus therapy. And the way they did this was to, to, first of all, wean all the participants off of any SSRIs that they may have been taking for those who were. And then they uh, initiated them on, on, a, on a series of therapy sessions. And so they went through a number of those sessions. And at, after they'd completed, I think, their third therapy session, they then randomized them to receive either the placebo or the MDA. And then they continued this for another three sessions. So it was 18 weeks beyond the initiation of the, of the medication. And what they were looking for as their endpoint was the significant reduction on the CAPS-5 scale. And then they, they had a, a number of pre-specified endpoints, one of which would be like a 10-point reduction on your CAPS-5 score. Uh, another one would be achieving a score on that scale of less than 10, meaning that they had basically lost their diagnosis of PTSD, or that they had a, went into what was called a remission, which means a, a significant reduction in their score plus loss of diagnosis. So, uh, you know, basically a complete response. And so they, they ran this study and they enrolled 91 uh, participants in the end. They were aiming for a little bit higher, but then COVID-19 came about, so they had difficulty with enrollment. So they were left with 91. Roughly half of them were randomized to each group, and 42 out of the 46 and 40, 37 out of the 44 in the placebo group, respectively, completed the trial and were the basis for this analysis. And the results were really impressive. They, you know, there was a, you know, a an effect size of 0.91 in terms of a reduction on this CAPS-5 score. And to put that in perspective, though this is not a comparison directly against the SSRIs, in the SSRI trials, we were looking at, a, at an effect size of around 0 0.3, 0 0.4, maybe 0.5 at best. So this was roughly double or maybe triple what had been experienced in the, in the Paxil trials in the past. So a really sort of striking result. And, you know, I thought the methodology behind the study with the blinding, at the end they did an assessment to see which, you know, how many of the patients thought that they were receiving the placebo versus the active. And interestingly, they, they really 
you know, a lot of those who were receiving the, the ecstasy thought they were receiving the ecstasy, which is maybe not surprising because its effects are extremely potent. And so you probably would notice that, that you were, you know, you were taking this drug. And so in, in that sense, the blinding was probably not very effective since it was kind of obvious what drug you were receiving after you'd had a dose. Nonetheless, I, I thought overall the, you know, the mechanics of, the, of how the trial was executed were very were very crisp and precise, and the data they presented were impressive in terms of effect size. And, and I and I came away thinking that this is this is probably a game changer for the for the field. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that uh, summary, Don. What did you do? You share Chris's feelings. What was your take on the study? Yeah, no, I agree. I I thought it was a really well constructed study. I thought I thought the uh, the way they approached things was really solid, and the way they set it up was really solid. As was the analysis and the and the uh, findings were as as pronounced as Chris is, is is mentioning. Although I had a couple of issues, and one of them was the blinding. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, this this is a very popular club drug. This is a drug that. A few years ago, there were some real problems with because, you know, kids were going to raves taking this drug and it has a propensity to cause dehydration. And there were uh, kids that were being sent to the emergency room because they got massively dehydrated in the middle of this hot, steamy, you know, rave or dance that they were that they were going to. So it's it's a it's a, a very commonly known drug, at least in that population. And I think one of the one of the effects of this drug is that you get huge dilatation of the pupils. And in addition to having a psychotropic drug, there's just no question when you look in the mirror that you are part of the active ingredient arm. So mm-hmm. I, I can't believe that anybody that was in that arm actually didn't know or suspect that they were in it. And they were told when they were being evaluated by these evaluators who themselves were blinded, the, the subjects were told, don't let on as to whether you think you are in the active group or not. And it was dependent upon the participant to maintain that blinding in the setting of getting these three evaluations. And I thought that was a little dodgy, and I can see how that could have introduced all sorts of of bias. That's one thing. The other thing that I thought was interesting, when you look at the figure and you look at the relapse rate, so the comparison of the placebo, which is behavioral therapy and a sugar pill, versus behavioral therapy and MDMA, there was a pronounced effect with the MDMA in the first couple of evaluations. But when you look at the final evaluation, there was a real relapse in the MDMA group, a substantial relapse, and they never mentioned it anywhere that I could see in the introduction or in the method section, or I mean in the results section, or in the discussion. And I thought that that was a little dodgy and a little worrisome. And I think that mm. you know it's very intriguing, but more work needs to be done, and we need to really follow this out much, much longer to see whether, in fact, all the benefit is, in fact, early, and you know, it's you know, o- overshadowed by a, a, a late relapse. One of the, the narratives that, that accompanied this was that, you know, we have to remember that this is a, a drug to augment the effectiveness of therapy, the sort of inward looking, like, how do you, how do you process your emotions? How do you reduce the, the, the fight and flight response? How do you manage your fear? As opposed to being just a study of the, of the drug itself. And, and technically that's true because both groups got the therapeutic, you know, uh, as sort of the backbone. But it, it, it's really, you know, interesting to speculate 
what would be the effect of the drug by itself without doing the therapy, you know, which would be obviously logistically far easier to do? Mm-hmm. Or does it really depend on taking the, taking the medication and then going through this therapeutic intervention, and it is the medication that augments the therapy? But does the medicine itself stand alone, or is it really just a way of facilitating the effectiveness of, of, of therapy? So I, I hope that's a question that they will chase in the future, because it seems like it could be a very important next, next question to answer. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I'm sort of agreeing with both of you in that I think that there is something intriguing going on here. I mean, the the size of the effects that they observed, Chris, it was helpful for me to have you walk through the comparison to the antidepressant drugs because it looked to me like this is an impressive effect size, but I had nothing to benchmark it to. So this really does, you know, appear to be a large benefit. Now, Temper that a bit with the fact that it's a small study, and small studies almost always overestimate effect sizes when they when they find them, and also temper that a little bit with you know the fact that it was a small study, and there were fair amount of baseline imbalances, which you'd expect, and they're certainly accounted for in your you know your assessment of random error, but you might want to you know think about whether or not those imbalances in any way contribute to the effect size. That said, I mean, there, you know, there does appear to me like there's something going on. And I, I think that is really promising and exciting. And I'd, I'd want to see a lot more information before I'd, I'd be willing to take this at, at you know, as, as is. But I, I share Don's concern about the blinding. So to put a, an actual number to it, they say, at the time of study on blinding, it became apparent that at least 10% had inaccurately guessed their treatment arm. So 10% didn't know which treatment <laughs> arm they're in. Well, 90% I mean, did. 90% did. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it was yeah. a weird way. It was a weird way to phrase it, I thought. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if it's a if it's a 50-50 guess, then you'd expect if if nobody yeah. knew what was going on, 50% of them would get it right. It turned out 90% of them got it right. So MDMA is not subtle in the least. <laughs> no. No. Now the question is, does it matter? Because, you know, if part of the therapy, if part of the benefit is just simply knowing that you're getting the drug and it makes you feel better, does it does it matter? Well, I think the answer to that goes to to the point that Don raised, which is that if there is substantial amount of of relapse, then then the answer is probably it does matter. It probably it isn't, you know, we can't count on this to necessarily be an effect of the drug as much as it is an effect of knowing that you're getting the drug. I, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying you need a lot more evidence to convince me. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not there yet, but I, I thought it was I thought it was really promising. Mm-hmm. You know, what did mm-hmm. the one of the other things that I noted was that they 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 talk about sort of stratification of the severity of PTSD and the the the, the worst worser cases the, the the more bad cases of PTSD are associated with these comorbidities. One of which is a, a something called a dissociative syndrome, where you you feel like you've got an out of body experience or um, substance abuse disorder, and how. In the description of the results, though it wasn't their main finding, they they indicated that there was, in particular, an effect seen with these more severe types of PTSD. But they don't mention the fact, and it's buried deep in the method section, that the presence of these comorbidities were an exclusion criteria. 
So my question was, are they are they stacking the deck mm. uh, maybe against themselves because they're excluding the more severe cases of PTSD from enrollment in the study, but they nonetheless find an effect amongst that 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 more severe group of yeah. PTSD sufferers who who might be considered to be a little bit more recalcitrant in terms of of, of an effect. I thought that that was interesting, and, and they didn't really mention it in the discussion. I, I thought that would have been helpful to have mm-hmm. that fleshed out some. So the, there are a lot of unanswered questions here, and I, I suppose uh, you know an important one is in the same way that the effects of ketamine for major depression seem to be rather transient. They're they're potent, but they last two or three weeks at a time, and then you have to go and have another ketamine administration. One wonders, you know, is there sort of a, a you know a more permanent you know, neurological lesion that underlies PTSD that is ameliorated by by the exposure to, to MDMA, but would not be, you know, after some time will will reassert itself. And so I, I would love to see like the durability of the effect studied uh, in, in these patients. And maybe they're planning a follow-up analysis to see, you know, wh- how do these individuals in the two groups fare over time, um, not just in the 18-week post-randomization uh, window. Although Chris, I, I'm certainly not up on the ketamine literature, but my I, I, my understanding was that ketamine may take several courses to kick in, but for some small some portion, whether it's small or medium or large, some portion actually do have a prolonged effect um, against depression with ketamine. So I, I I agree we're on we're sort of on the cusp of this incredibly exciting new area of of investigation for this whole class of drugs that have been pariahs for our whole lives. And now they're being seriously considered and the FDA is taking a serious look and allowing researchers like these guys to do really good work. And and we will get an answer and it'll be a really Mm -hmm. important answer, both Mm -hmm. for depression and PTSD, which are really, really important mental health problems. And I have to say that that sort of following that thread, there's a whole world of research opening up around the therapeutic use of medical of medical marijuana like not not medical marijuana mm-hmm. in sort of a loose sense like but but like specifically targeting diseases doing proper randomized controlled trials with mm-hmm. proper blinding and follow up and all of those things to see you know what are the potential therapeutic uses of cannabis mm-hmm. uh, and so i think all all of this is like suddenly shifting and becoming open open game for um you know serious investigation yeah lsd and psilocybin too mm-hmm. yeah I, I thought the other thing I thought was interesting about the study was because it's a controlled substance and because the study was done during COVID times, there were a lot of sort of challenges to actually getting this study done. So they had to get special approval. They had to get FDA breakthrough therapy designation. Then they had to figure out the, the dosing to use. And interestingly enough, they say, although low dose MDMA improved blinding in phase two studies, it led to a decreased effectiveness compared to the inactive placebo, making it easier to detect a difference, which is really interesting because basically what they're saying is people couldn't tell what drug they were on if you use low dose and it was less effective. Therefore, we had to up the dose. Well, (laughs) that could be because you need a bigger dose for it to be effective, but it could also be that the placebo effect was attenuated. Yeah, yeah the, 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 the knowing <laughs> just knowing which drug you were you were getting led to the the benefit. They they did live video interviews. The the independent raiders did following mm-hmm. the each experimental session to try and sort of help with the blinding. They then had to shift to televisits during the COVID era, which I thought was was pretty you know cool. And then they 
anticipated the effects of MDA, such as euphoria, stimulation, and feelings of closeness. So they specifically didn't ask about those things as adverse events in order to prevent unblinding the raiders. But as Don, you said, you you have skepticism as to whether or not that would actually work and and be effective. Just sort of all kinds of interesting pieces to this. Right. Because it would be very hard to not start a, a therapy session by saying, how are you feeling right now? Yeah. And you're really like, I feel awesome. <laughs> Do you want to dance <laughs> for 12 hours? You know? <laughs> and, 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 and wasn't the first therapy session, wasn't it conducted with a therapist as the person was coming on to the medication and it was Absolutely. an eight-hour eight therapy session. Right, so right. So they like, were totally, totally uh, intoxicated while they were going through these sessions. Sort of a, a trip advisor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and nonetheless, all these things notwithstanding, I, I thought this was just a fascinating uh, piece of science. Yeah, I do too. So, I mean, I think there are some a lot of unanswered questions, but I thought this was a, a really nice piece of work and a, a, a good first step. Yeah, 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 yeah indeed. Good on them. Oh, and the, the other thing I wanted to mention, which was sort of curious, I was trying to figure out who the funder was. Uh, and I couldn't actually find that information in the paper. I don't know if you dug around in the fine print and maybe I just went past it. But the one of the, the organizations that was, was responsible for designing this in consultation, not consultation, excuse me, in collaboration with, with FDA, was a group that studies the, the – it's called the MAPS – Coalition, and I, I can't find the definition of the acronym right uh, right now. But it's a, a group that studies the the, the use of psych, of psychedelics mm. for psychiatric illnesses. Yeah, I I don't I didn't uh, pick up that on the, about the funder, but I did read the list of disclosures, which are extensive. Mm-hmm. But I didn't find anything very interesting in them. Yeah, so here it is. It's MAPS stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Yeah. Where they got their funding to do this, I don't know, but maybe from the tie dye industry <laughs> or the pizza or ice cream uh, industry. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about whether vaccine passports are legal and ethical, at least in the United States, although they do talk about internationally. And this is motivated by a viewpoint paper in JAMA by first author Glenn Cohen entitled Digital Health Passes in the Age of COVID-19, Are Vaccine Passports Lawful and Ethical? The, I think the answer is yes. Yeah. So this, um, <laughs> I have to admit, I was- We're, we're biased. I was, I was a little- um, <laughs> Fair enough. I was a little surprised by this, though, because, I, you know, I'm sure- for people who are well steeped in this, in, in you know, in the law, this is not all that surprising. But but as somebody who's not, I was not totally sure they would be considered to be legal. I mean, ethical is another issue, but legal in the United States. And so I, I was curious to read this because, I, I you know, to see what the arguments were. So digital health passports, you know, essentially a, a digital record of your proof of essentially proof of, of vaccination, they make the case they would offer a lot of economic benefits until we get to the point of herd immunity because you could control how you reopen the economy. And, you know, while some people may be against them, it may help stimulate the economy because if consumers uh, knew that, say, a restaurant was going to require a digital health passport for coming into the premises, then they may be more likely to want to go to that restaurant because they, you know, they might feel safer. So the article then talks about some of the scientific challenges to digital health passports, which I don't have uh, a lot of interest in talking through. But 
what I thought was interesting is the question of are they both lawful and ethical? And and the answer to the lawful question seems to be yes, both both domestically and sort of here in the United States, but also according to international law. So those of us who travel, you know, to internationally know that you often are required to travel with your World Health Organization card documenting your vaccination or can be subject to being required to get a, say, for example, yellow fever vaccination at the border in some cases. And this is all codified into international law. So the international health regulations signed by 196 countries grant discretion to exercise evidence-based public health powers. And Article 31 specifically allows governments to require proof of vaccination. In the United States, it's states that hold the power to require this. And as we know, states already condition school entry in most states, I think all states, condition school entry on vaccination status. So this is this is clearly, you know, long standing precedent for this. The article then goes through some of the, the potentials where you might be concerned that you would be violating U.S. law. So it's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has issued guidance on SARS-CoV-2 vaccinations, which apply to any vaccine which has been approved by the FDA and also seems to also apply to experimental ones that have been given emergency use authorization. And they they do not put any restrictions on the use of a, a digital health passport. Employers could use them and requiring the vaccination doesn't violate the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And employers using them probably also doesn't violate HIPAA because employers are not typically covered entities under HIPAA. So it seems like there's these would be perfectly legal to use in the United States. The question then becomes, are they are they ethical? So mm-hmm. let me just stop there and and you know ask you guys what you think. I mean, is this something we should be doing? Perfectly legal in the United States as determined by the state legislatures. And as we are seeing in the United States, the, the state legislatures in a number of states are passing, are beginning to pass laws mm. that are not necessarily consistent with the scientific evidence. So it, that leaves me a little uneasy that, in fact, you know, a rogue, a rogue Republican legislature could establish the law of that state's land as being absolutely not required. So, you know, I would, I would rather see it be a law or a set of circumstances that were set at the national level. But from this article and from sort of the little bit that we know as non-lawyers and as non-legislators, the only way the federal government can have any oversight over that is if it has, if it in some way affects interstate traffic, interstate commerce. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that that we'll ever have a federal solution to this. It'll mm-hmm. be a state by by state solution. I think there's a really interesting example that occurred in California when they provided belief exceptions to vaccination in in terms of get, going into school, and yeah. the 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 number of belief exceptions that that were being requested and granted went way up. And then there was a referendum in California, and they said basically belief exceptions are no longer available, but medical exceptions are. And then the number of medical exceptions went way, way up. And people were trying to get medical exceptions for non-vaccination of their children from neurologists and brain Mm -hmm. surgeons and eye doctors, you know, physicians whose training makes them not necessarily qualified to be able to make those decisions. So there's a tremendous groundswell of of resistance that 
in my experience, has just been getting worse and worse and worse. And over the last 12 months has become completely jump-started by, you know, by COVID. And it's, it's mm-hmm. much worse than mm-hmm. it has ever been. Well, I, I guess I would say that, you know, an individual has a right to not be vaccinated if they uh, so choose. And, you know, that's their decision. But that is separate from their right to expose other people to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that, that concern is becoming less and less important as more and more people have been vaccinated. And so, you know, now that I've been vaccinated, I don't particularly care if anybody exposes me because I believe the science and I, I'm very confident the vaccine will prevent me. So I don't really care if someone exposes me to COVID-19 anymore because I don't think anything will happen from it. But not everybody's been vaccinated and not everybody can respond to the vaccine. And so there, there still remains an ethical, you know, mandate that people you know, prioritize the health of the people around them beyond their own health. If you are making a health decision that only affects you, that's your decision. But if you're making a health decision that affects the people around you in, in your network, then, then it is no longer about you. It is about now, you know, because the whole field of ethics is not about, you know, making decisions for you as if you were an island. The whole field of ethics is about human interaction. And, and I think in that sense, it's, it, is, it is clearly ethical to require that we protect each other. Right? It's, you know, if it is not a, a decision that only impacts you, but affects the herd, then then it is, uh, you know, the, your your personal right becomes subordinate to this greater need to protect, you know, the rest of society. So I I, I think the ethical criterion is 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 very clearly met here. And you know, again, we're not requiring people to get vaccinated. We're just saying that if you don't want to get vaccinated, you do not have a God given right to go to Chick fil A. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to go back to Don's point about these being, you know, state legislatures essentially having the authority, and could we have a a, a federal law? I agree with you completely, Don. There's there's no chance of that happening, because the you know our government is so divided right now. Getting anything through the the Senate would be presumably impossible, and so we're it, this is always going to fall to being a, a state issue, and I suspect that you are going to see different states making different decisions on this. And, you know, you wonder what the consequences of, of that are going to be. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Picking about yeah. picking up my Chris's, Chris's point. I, I think it's really important for, for it to be recognized that I think that the state's ability to mandate vaccination in everybody is has limits. And I think we all would agree that it should have limits in terms of what the state can demand that you can do. But the state can, and when I say the state, I mean either the federal or the you know the state governments. But you you choose to participate in uh, you know a mandate like vaccination to enjoy the privileges of society. And mm-hmm. I think it's perfectly reasonable to withdraw the privileges of participation in society, like going to school, getting a free public education, or you know, riding on public transportation, you know, things like that. And and I have no ethical issue with withholding those privileges for those people who are putting the rest of the population or the ho- most highly vulnerable part of the population at risk. Like Chris said, you know, people who have it's now being shown that people who have cancer, people who are, who are taking DMARDs for, you know, for autoimmune disease or people who are on, uh, you know, who are immunosuppressed because they have lymphoma and are on chemotherapy, they're even if they get vaccinated, they're not responding. So they remain unprotected. And they are the people who we as a community need to protect if we are a civilized society. Yep. Well said. So one additional point that I thought was interesting is that the ethics of this, or at least the equity, if you put those two together, are 
affected by the timing of when any kind of a digital health passport would be mm-hmm. required. Because a, if you were to institute a digital health passport now, you would potentially unfairly exclude those who can't access the vaccine. So you've got to wait until the point at which there is access yeah. for everyone, which, you know, in the United States, we're pretty close to there. We're not there yet, but we're pretty close to there. But, you know, if you were to institute these for international travel, which, you know, a lot of places are considering doing, then you're going to you're going to allow travel by, you know, those countries who have been able to access all of the vaccine supply and not folks in in countries where they, they can't. And that represents a potential ethical conundrum right there. So it, it seems like there's, you know, I would agree with you both. I don't think there is a, a an overriding ethical concern, but there are these sort of smaller issues that, that do come up that I think need to get sorted out in order for this to be able to work on a global scale. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, one, there was one other thing that I thought was um, interesting in this paper, which concerns like the, the, the use of the phrase, the vaccine. Right. So we hear that all the time. Did you Mm. get the vaccine? But there isn't a vaccine. There is no the vaccine. There are three vaccines. And while the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine appear to be incredibly effective and almost, I I think, interchangeable in their performance, that is not true for the um, the Johnson and Johnson single shot vaccine, nor for the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not relevant so much in the United States. But nonetheless, these vaccines are not equivalent. So when we say you have received the vaccine, we're treating them as if they're all completely interchangeable, even though that is that is probably not true. I think actually not probably not true. It is it is not true. So, you know, that is a, a, another sort of subtlety to this debate that, that I think, you know, has been really not discussed yeah. because we would like to view it in a much simpler way of saying they're all the same. But uh, that will not be the truth, you know, in six to 10 months when we start to see that, you know, some of these vaccines are losing efficacy over time, as vaccines do. Mm-hmm. And then the question comes, can these vaccines all boost? Can you renew your, can you update your, your you know, your immunocompetence, uh, your immune status by taking a booster dose. And the, the jury is out as to whether the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine can be boosted. Mm-hmm. Or, any just don't know. or any of them. Or Actually, any of them. Actually, this one. Yeah. Yeah. Though I think the the um, the, the Pfizer and Moderna folks are are, are sprinting down the track on this. Yeah. Uh, a colleague of mine, when I was chatting with him the other day, mentioned casually that he had just received his third dose of the Moderna vaccine, and the third dose was the booster dose, which was a cocktail of the of the parent strain and the South Africa strain. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So, that, so that's a trial? those data are coming. Yeah, those data are coming. It's actually part of the original, not the original trial, but it's part of the amended protocol. So it's the same phase three trial, but is now adapted and is including a booster evaluation as well, using Good. several different combinations of the boosters, one of which is the parent strain combined with the South Africa strain, but there are others that are looking at the UK strain or just the parent strain alone. Hmm. Interesting. Any Any last thoughts before we move on? All right. So let's go on to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And Don, I'm going to I'm going to let you go first this time. Oh, really? How wonderful. Thank you. Yes, you are most welcome. (laughs) All right. So I read an absolutely fascinating viewpoint in in JAMA. And it it, uh, I wanted to sort of start out my report of this by asking the question of you guys, why do we sleep? Oh. Not, because, not because we're tired. What is the, what is the physiologic function of sleep? I mean, sleep is something that all higher order animals do, and 
one would think that evolutionarily, it's not very adaptive. You, I mean, yeah. when, when you are asleep, you are highly vulnerable. So it must serve a really important function. What is the function of sleep? Well, I, yeah. so I, obviously, I don't know the answer to that question, and you're going to hopefully tell us. But didn't didn't sort of the sleep evolve in animals that were able to uh, burrow underground? Because that would be the first animal that could completely shut down and still feel safe. No idea. Whereas animals that couldn't, you know, would sort of have to develop this sort of one eye, you know, like fish have sleep with one eye open kind of thing. <laughs> one idea. I, I don't know about that. Mm. I, I can't answer your question, though I accept the premise that it must be essential. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. But there was a recent story I stumbled across when I was listening to the radio. It might have been Radiolab, actually, talking about this experiment that was done by a group of French sleep scientists who went into a cave, deep into yeah. a cave, and spent six months living in the cave. Yep, I heard so it. with no sunlight exposure at all. And then they just sort of followed, like, what happened? And one of the most fascinating things of this is that people drifted off of the 24-hour circadian clock very quickly, and some, you know, sort of naturally acquired a rhythm of less sleep, and some required more. But the average was that it drifted up to a 30-hour day. And that's where the majority of the, of the participants in this sort of set themselves, implying that the 24-hour sleep cycle is, is, a, is itself an aberration that is disrupted by the rising of the sun each day. Hmm. But that doesn't, that doesn't inform us in, in terms of what is the function of sleep. No. Did, no. did you think we were going to answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. Oh. Oh, in any event, so... Uh, do, you, do you have a theory, Don? Well, this guy, Anthony Komarov, does in this JAMA Viewpoint, which uh, just came out. And he, he points out the fact that there's been some prior research which seemed to indicate that the unused synapses that occur during over a long period of many days are pruned during during sleep, and that might have something to do with it. But but he 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 talks more about the despite the fact that for several centuries science has looked for the the presence of a central nervous system lymphatic system. And it's never been found. And the lymphatic system is a system that sort of takes the, the fluid that exudes out of the cells and, of course, is its way between cells and then finds its way into these channels called the lymph channels in which there are lymph nodes. And then eventually that intracellular, then extracellular fluid gets dumped back into the circulation. And that is the lymphatic circulation in the body outside of the central nervous system. And they were perplexed because they never were able to show that. But recent evidence in non-human primates, mice, and in humans indicates that they have discovered a central nervous system lymphatic system. And it is constructed as this sleeve around all of the arteries in the central nervous system. And that sleeve contains essentially small amounts of cerebrospinal fluid. And they are they now postulate that the function of this central nervous system lymphatic system is to take the toxins that are produced by the very metabolically active neurons and glia cells in the central nervous system which produce these toxic substances like amyloid beta and tau which need to be flushed out because they are toxic on the, on the cells, and that their accumulation leads to Alzheimer's disease. And there has been a body of evidence that suggests that lack of sleep 
predisposes you later on in life to the development of, of Alzheimer's disease. And that they now are saying that this central nervous system, lymphatic system, is this waste management system for the brain. And that they have shown that the flow of what they are calling the glymphatic system is markedly increased during sleep. Hmm. So during sleep, all of the toxins that are building up in these very metabolically active neural cells and glial cells make it out into the extracellular interstitial fluid or extracellular fluid and then get sort of bathed by the central the cerebrospinal fluid and get pushed into the central nervous system, lymphatic system, and that, that then joins the regular lymphatic system that is found in the neck. So in essence, hmm. so in essence, cool. we sleep to take out the garbage, <laughs> <laughs> to take out the brain garbage. That it's, is I, really that is really cool. It was a That's fascinating really cool. article. So I really I highly recommend it. It just came out in JAMA, and it's a viewpoint by what it is, Anthony Kamaroff. Wow. Yeah. I, will, I will certainly want to read that. Thank you, Don. That sounds sure. amazing. Definitely going to read that one. Chris, what do you got? Well, I had been receiving lots of enthusiastic endorsements of a Netflix movie called My Octopus Teacher. Yeah. Oh, have I've you, heard about have that. Have you seen this? I have I not, seen it but yet. I really want to see it. It is marvelous. So I, 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 I will just describe it for you. I, we, we watched it as a family last week and we were all just like crying at the end. It was so emotional. But it is a beautiful movie as well. And it, it concerns a, um, a South African, basically he's a, a videographer who, who studies wildlife. And he'd gone into a, a depression and a midlife crisis and just basically couldn't function. So he went back to his childhood home, which is on False Bay, south of Cape Town. Mm-hmm. If you've been there, and it's apparently a very beautiful yep. place. Yep. And he started snorkeling in the kelp beds in this bay. And of course, the water is very cold, but he you know, quickly adapted to that. And he started doing it every day. And, and one of these days when he was sort of snorkeling about looking at interesting things and just marveling at the beauty of the place, he, he, he saw this strange looking thing, which is a whole bunch of mussel shells and other shells kind of arranged in a ball with all the shells sort of pointing outward. And he was looking at this thing and he said, what the heck could that possibly be? And then all of a sudden, this thing transferred into an octopus and dropped all the muscle cells that it had been holding onto and then darted off. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is so, I've never seen anything like that. And so he followed it back to its, 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 to its den because octopuses live in a kind of in a burrow and they usually surround themselves with shells. And he started swimming out to take a look at the octopus every day and spending as much time as he, he could with this octopus. And this, the movie is all about him spending essentially an entire year hanging out with the octopus in this kelp bed and learning about the octopus and eventually interacting with the octopus such that the octopus would would come out and sort of hold hands with him Mm. and at one point actually crawls up into his chest and basically hugs him you know and sort of wraps himself around this guy and they just sort of sit there with him sort of like patting the octopus like it's a giant kitten. Of course, it's got a sharp beak and it's venomous, so it could do him harm, but they they had learned to trust each other and became interested in each other. And he, he studies its behavior and learns all sorts of things that were not known about octopuses, including its foraging and its, you know, its cunning ways of capturing its prey, which were really ingenious, but also just the fact that this, this animal is so 
incredibly intelligent mm-hmm. uh, and interactive and yet so ephemeral because they only live about a year. And so every, and they, they're solitary. So there's no imprinting. There's no learning from mother duck how to, how to swim. They all, they have to figure out everything by themselves through experimentation, but they're incredibly curious animals and they're incredibly fast learners. And sadly, at the very end, you know, it, it, it mates and has its clutch of eggs and then octopuses die. They're, they're like what we were talking about with cicadas. As soon as they've mated and they've raised their brood, they, they, they die and they sort of donate themselves to the ecosystem. And so he loses his friend, but it is a, it is a beautiful, beautiful movie. And I, I, I think you should, you should go take a look at it with the kids will love it. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard but that. The adults heard, will love I've it too. I've heard that from a lot of people. As have I. They're such fascinating creatures. Thanks for, for sharing that one, Chris. All right. Well then I will end with the absurdity of peer review. So I, I was interested. I came across this, I don't know, what do you call medium posts? You call them blog posts. I don't know what you call uh, them. I think but it would be a blog post. Yeah. A, a medium blog post called the absurdity of peer review, what the pandemic revealed about scientific publishing by Mark Humphreys. And he, you know, he makes an argument that essentially uh, the pandemic has sort of pulled the pulled the curtain back and and exposed us for peer review not really doing what it is intended to do and demonstrating that you know peer review always was problematic that we like to to give it a lot of credit for being the system that allows us to weed out the good from the bad when in fact we as you know we know in this podcast Bad stuff gets through all the time and good stuff can be treated very, very poorly. None of that, of course, is is new news to any of our listeners because we've talked about that quite a bit. But there were sort of two, a couple of things that I thought were interesting in this article. The first is he talks a bit about Einstein's experience with peer review. I assume, do you guys know that that history no. there? No. What happened? It, so I did, I did know about this. This is sort of fairly well known, but only one of Einstein's 300 papers, 300 plus papers, had ever been peer reviewed. No. And the the one article was sent out for peer review and came back with comments and was sent back to him. And Einstein's reaction to that was, I never gave you permission to send out my manuscript <laughs> to other people. I am done with your journal. <laughs> and there's a, you know, you can, you can Google it. You can find he, the, he the can get away with pull that. it off. He can get yeah. away with that. <laughs> well, so here's the thing about that. You're right. You're absolutely right about that. But, you know, this sort of leads into a bit of the, the history of peer review, which I, I really didn't know. So peer review is supposedly was started with the Royal Society starting Hmm. to get anonymous reports in the 1830s for papers that they were publishing in philosophical transactions. But, you know, it really wasn't used all that much until the 1970s, which is why, you know, only one of Einstein's paper was ever peer reviewed. And when it happened, he was appalled by this this happening. So we, you know, we think of it as a mainstay of, of the scientific publishing process, but it really, it wasn't until about 1973 that it starts to, to take off and become a central part of the, you know, the publishing process that we know it now, which is interesting to me because, you know, when you think of epidemiology as a field, I mean, the, the 1970s is really when epidemiology gets going as a field. I mean, obviously it existed well, well before that. And, you know, sort of chronic disease epidemiology probably starts in the fifties and sixties 
uh, probably starts before that, but you know, smoking and lung cancer is sort of when it gets its big, you know, a lot of the the development, but the development of the field and the methods that are central to the field is really, you know, c- occurring around the same time as this whole process. So, I, you know, that just sort of was inherently interesting to me. But he then goes through and makes this argument that, you know, we talk about peer review as being so great, but then why do we have the replication crisis in in psychology if the peer review system is so great? Why do we have so many you know, COVID papers that end up getting retracted, et cetera, et cetera. That all led me to a Vox piece from 2015 called Let's Stop Pretending Peer Review Works. And that got me to an experiment that was done in the 1980s. I think I, I Nick will know because Nick always remembers the history of everything. We, we, we may have actually alluded to this in, in an earlier episode, but I didn't really remember it, which I thought was just an interesting experiment done, you know, Peer review is taking off in the 70s. This experiment was done in the 1980s with some skepticism that peer review really done anything. So two researchers from Cornell and the University of North Dakota decided that what they would do is to see if peer review was, in fact, effective. They would take 12 papers that had been published two to three years earlier in some selective American psychology journals, and then they would resubmit those exact same articles to the same journals with different Mm. author names. And what happened was nearly 90% of the peer reviewers of these papers found serious flaws and recommended against publishing them, often citing serious methodological flaws, suggesting, you know, not too surprisingly, but that as we've experienced many times, that the peer review process can be a bit arbitrary. What, you know, if you were to send a paper to a hundred people instead of just three, the the consensus might be very different than what you get from only three or two people in some cases, sometimes even only one. And so what, you know, we experience in this with peer review of of manuscripts, but we also experience it uh, with grant reviews. You know, you Absolutely. submit your, your grant to an NIH panel and, it, you know, if it had gone to a different three people, might have gotten a very different score. And so, it, you know, to me, it just sort of points out that there are these challenges with the peer review system that we haven't solved yet. It's not, you know, to the point where I want to throw out the peer review system, but it definitely points me to the fact that it is, you know, it is it is one step. It is not the end all be all. And I think, you know, we really do need to be thinking about how we improve the system. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that the system has evolved to the point where it's under a lot more stress yeah. now than it was sure. five or ten years ago because there are so many more journals that are seeking review. And I think that you know the 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 number of potential reviewers is not expanding at the same rate. So I think that there have there's a, there's a real crisis in terms of finding quality peer reviewers. Totally agree. Yep. A lot of, a lot of work to be done there. Nothing of a surprise. I just thought there was some interesting history and tidbits there that were worth sharing. Mm. So that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX or me at, at ProfMattFox or Don at DTheo1 or Chris at ID.Gill. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and remembering everything that's ever been presented on the podcast in the past. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>